Hello, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubov, the dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the vice dean. So you might have heard in our last episode on this season about the future of law, how autonomous vehicles are changing the face of traffic laws and how liability gets imposed. And autonomous vehicles are a pretty visible example of new technology changing the law. Today, we're going to talk about a less visible example, and that is how digital technology is changing actually the way lawyers work and the way people access legal information. That's right. We're going to be talking about big data and the cutting-edge tools that allow computers to crunch massive amounts of information like never before. And that has implications in all sorts of areas, including legal practice and legal theory. Absolutely. And so here to help us talk about this today is Michael Livermore. He's a professor here at UVA who teaches administrative and environmental law. Mike has also gotten interested in the power of computers to unlock human data to reveal insights on law. One important part of that area of expertise is an online workshop that he leads on the computational analysis of law. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. It's great to have you. Why don't we start there on that online workshop, uh, the computational analysis of law. What is that? Yeah, that sounds super boring, right? Um, <laughs> I think it sounds fascinating. <laughs> it sounds interesting, but I don't know what it is. Right. So, so what we're doing in the workshop is research that uses advanced computational tools to study the law as a phenomenon. And what I mean by that is the law as text, right? So lawyers know this. I think everybody knows this, that the law always shows up as text. That's what law is. You know, think back to the very first laws ever in the history of the world. It's chiseled on stone, some text, right? And what's happened in the last 15, 20 years is that the tools that we have to analyze text have really become much more sophisticated. Um, You think you talk to your phone, Siri can understand what you're saying, right? That's just a simple manifestation. But especially with text, um, we can get all kinds of interesting statistics. We can take a body of text that we know nothing about and automatically extract its content in the different categories. So there's all kinds of cool tools. And what we do in this workshop is basically apply those tools to the law to see what we can learn about you know, legal development, how law changes, what the law looks like uh, in basically every domain imaginable. So it's super eclectic in terms of the topic matter, but we're using these new techniques to try to learn things. Can you give us some examples of some of the topics? Because maybe that will give us a way into how this technology is actually working and what helps us understand about law. Sure. So I'll talk about my papers because I'm a law professor, so I have to do that. Um, So in one paper, and actually a few different papers, we look at uh, the Supreme Court. It's an interesting, I mean, obviously it's something lawyers care about, Mm -hmm. U.S. Supreme Court. We have digital copies of every Supreme Court opinion. And so we've looked at a couple of different things. So in one paper, we look at the evolution of writing style on the court, right? We just ask, like, how is the court's writing style changed over time? Are there kind of stylistic epics, you know, where uh, style is relatively consistent within a group of people over a temporal period? Um, one of the kind of interesting things we do in that paper is we do something that's referred to as sentiment analysis. Mm-hmm. So what you do in sentiment analysis is you try to extract out you know, the sentiment, how the writer is feeling uh, from text. And you can do this a really a fairly well-established technique. And we find 
over time that the Supreme Court is gradually getting grumpier and grumpier. <laughs> really? And grumpier. Um, so they're that, not supposed to feel those judges, right? You, there shouldn't be in no the, emotion, right? In the yeah. theory of right, the objectivity of judging, right. there shouldn't be emotion right. in there. Maybe it's because they're suppressing their feelings more than they used to, right? So that comes <laughs> so across it's coming in a out, way, right? right? You can find it with your yeah. tools. Um, and then another question that we ask in that paper is whether uh, clerks have an influence over mm-hmm. the writing style in the court, mm-hmm. right? So uh, clerks are a relatively modern institution, really in the mid twentieth century. You start to see the the, the clerk as we understand mm-hmm. it. So recent law school grads who clerk for a judge for a year, usually a year, and help them write their opinions. Right. Do serious substantive work. And mm-hmm. so in earlier phases, there were, of course, employees of the court and what might even be called clerks, but they would be like their drivers or carry their briefcases or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it gradually the role took on a more substantive um, cast to it in the mid-20th century is where you, there's a bit of a phase change. And so we look to see whether the court style is different now than it was essentially before in a way that the time trends don't uh, account for. And what we find is actually there's more year-to-year inconsistency. So each justice's writing style is more inconsistent, which is you know consistent with the story of your turning over your clerks mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but also we find that the court's writing style just generally, not ju- not an individual justice, but the courts is more consistent. So again, in a way that's consistent with the clerk story, where the clerks are all trying to achieve some- Some supreme, voice. Exactly, right. yeah, right. Supreme Court voice. Right. Uh, but a, what's lost is the individual justice's voice. So does wow. that vary across justice, though, how much variation there is year to year? I mean, I clerk for justice- Breyer and Leslie Clark for, for Justice, Justice Souter. So I think we'd both be curious, you know, d- does are there justices who really do have more of their own voice? You know, there probably are. There probably is that phenomenon. I think a lot of people report that and different justices, just the scuttlebutt is some write their own opinions, mm-hmm. others, their clerks write their opinions for them. We have a data problem to really be able to say that with enough. You know, basically, we you need yeah. a lot of data to be able to say anything about any of this stuff because there's so much variation. Um, and so we haven't been able to really get a beat on that um, at the justice level. Can you tell us more about the technology here? So it sounds like in all of these studies, there's some sort of tool that's being used to process and basically read scads and scads of legal text and to identify patterns in them and to, to help us understand in some you know, more bird's eye view way, the patterns that you would see across just huge amounts of legal text. Is that the basic the yep. basic idea? Yep, that's the basic idea. How different is that from, say, Westlaw or Lexis or tools that have existed for a long time that lawyers are familiar with? Right. I mean, in a sense, it's fairly similar. Um, the data is the same, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, at some level, there was a big important phase change that occurred when all of this stuff that we're talking about went from being in analog format in Mm -hmm. books that you read with your eyes to a digital format that could be processed. And then searched, right? And then searched. So in the old days, you had to have indexes and headnotes and all kinds of analytical tools that allowed you to find the cases you wanted to find. To even find them in the Mm -hmm. first place, right? Right. And so that was a huge shift that Mm -hmm. occurred, I guess, in the 70s and 80s is when that happened. And... Um, and so that was kind of step one. And then basically what's happened over the past several decades is computer scientists and mathematicians and data science people and n- people that do natural language processing and you know linguists and so mm-hmm. on have come up with different ways of trying to think about what to do with this data, 
basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sentiment analysis that I described is literally just there's a dictionary of positive words and negative words, mm-hmm. you know? So the word nice is a positive word and the word grumpy is a negative mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. And you then just take a text, you reduce it, you know, to get a little technical, what's referred to as a term frequency vector. So what that is, actually mm-hmm. a very simple thing, it's just a list of every word that appears in the document mm-hmm. and the number of times that it appears in the document. And then from those list of words, you can say, well, which ones are the positive words, which ones are the negative words, and what percentage are positive words, and which percentage are negative words. There's nothing to that math. It's just counting. But it illuminates what's going on in the text. And you know, not as sophisticated as if you were to read it, you would you would have a much better sense of whether, you know, what the tone of the thing was. But you can't read 100,000 documents, right? right? So it's a rougher measure, but you can apply it on, in such scale that you can learn things. And so basically, all of these techniques are, are in one way or another variants on this. It's counting, it's some statistics, some of it more sophisticated than others, some of it quite computationally intensive and, you know, very sophisticated. Um, But they're versions of taking like lists of words and their frequencies and so on and and analyzing them in some way to tell us something about the document that we might be able to learn from reading it, but we just can't do it at that scale. So these new techniques, including artificial intelligence, AI, that I want to get to in a minute, right, they're based on the existence of big data combined with the technology that allows you to see patterns and understand what's going on in the big data in ways that we didn't used to be able to. Right. That's the project. Okay. Great. So tell us, for lawyers, what are the challenges and opportunities of that project? What's, what's, what's changing in the world as a result of those, um, those transformations? Right. So it's actually a huge world of these things. So if we think of like really in practice kind of stuff, one is like in discovery, right? You know, for folks listening, discovery is the process where there's two litigants um, that are, you know, battling over something and there's you know, a, a phase of the litigation where essentially one can, the plaintiff can make requests to the defendant for various documents and so on and so forth. And in the, in really big litigation, one of the ways that defendants, you know, can can comply is to just spend lots and lots and lots of paper over to the to the plaintiff's side, right? And the plaintiff then has to review all this. And so... So it's time intensive, it's personnel intensive, right. and it's expensive. Exactly. Um, and it used to be, right, that you would just send, you know, on this big litigation, you would send 20 associates over to a doc review room or something like that, right, um, to look through this stuff. So a couple of things have happened. One is documents have become digital, right? So now it's no longer like a warehouse holding all these documents. Now that has actually made discovery in a sense harder because there's more documents that are retained. So the a number of things that are retained are just massive because it includes like all emails and all the attachments to every email and so on. So the amount of stuff that's potentially subject to discovery requests is just humongous. So as a consequence, though, of the digitization, you can also apply these computational tools. Just simple stuff like keyword searches, that is super common. But what's happened kind of in the last few years, there's been a move towards what's referred to as predictive analytics in the context of discovery. So the way that works is, you know, you might make some initial requests and so on and go back and forth. But what you can also do on top of that is essentially take a random sample or some narrowed sample, pull out the documents that are responsive, and then use those 
what you've kind of hand-coded as a training set that you can then use to train a machine learning algorithm that can go through the rest of the documents, okay? So now instead of 20 people on your discovery team, you can get that down to five. So it's a huge cost savings. So that's one example, right? But I mean, that's an important one, though. Discovery is a lot of work. It's a lot of what uh, especially junior lawyers do when they first get in if they're, if they're in a litigation practice. And so this is, is a very important um, you know, change in legal practice that has come about and that is there's an AI machine learning element to it. What I think is on the horizon is, is a project that, again, I've been working on, lots of other people work on this in different ways, is, is law search. So another thing that lawyers do is search for the law, right? That's part of the expertise. That's part of what we train students to do at a law school, right? So you, you come into law school, you don't necessarily know how to find relevant law. You leave law school, hopefully you do. Uh, that's the idea. That's what we hope. Right? <laughs> um, and then and you get better at it as you, as you proceed in practice. So a case comes up and you've got to figure out what are the relevant precedents, what are the authorities. Exactly. What are the statutory mm-hmm. authorities, the regulatory? I mean, a, a matter comes up, right? Yep. And you're going to advise a client or you're going to litigate it. And the client, it could be anything. It could be, you know, I have a dispute with somebody. It could say, I want to open a factory. What are the relevant laws that govern what I can and can't do? What permits mm-hmm. do I need to get and so on? And so, I'll, you know, how does a lawyer in practice do that? Well, some of it's his or her personal experience with similar matters, you know, and then they can get on Lexus or Westlaw and do that whole thing. That's getting more sophisticated. So like I said, we started with, you know, as Risa noted, you go to the library, you look up in the index or whatever. Now, you know, Westlaw, you can put in your Boolean terms and connectors search and a little bit of natural language processing. But on the horizon is more like artificial intelligence tools. So like IBM's Watson, which was the, you know, the famous, beat, mm-hmm. you know, whatever guy, what is Ken something or other at Jeopardy. Um, do you remember his name? Ken Jennings. Yeah, Ken Jennings. I'm not <laughs> yeah. a Jeopardy fan myself. But um, in any case, Watson was the um, was the AI application that 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 beat the world uh, human world champion at Jeopardy. Very difficult. And IBM is now um, deploying that same software in lots of different applications. And law is one of them. There are a few companies and some law firms that are working with IBM's Watson to improve. And it's search. Especially you go up and you ask the, an equivalent of a Jeopardy question, right? You can phrase it in terms of an actual question, though, I think. Um, <laughs> and you and, get an answer. And you, right. And you get a declarative. You just get an answer. Like, this is the law. You know, this is the relevant law. And, um, and there's another, you know, there's a, there's a, I've been working with some folks at Dartmouth and some folks at the um, engineering school here on uh, an approach where you could someday, if we get this sufficiently refined, input essentially a legal memo without any law in it. It just describes the matter in legal terms, essentially. And you up and put it into the machine and the machine gives back to you all the relevant law. And you can imagine that being an iterative process. So you write down some initial thoughts. The machine gives you back some possibly relevant authorities. You kind of, you add the ones that are relevant. You refine your thinking goes back to the machine, sends you more relevant authority, possibly then if you're at a law firm, linking you up with internal information, right? So because the law firm has seen similar matters. And so essentially you end up co-writing the, you know, a legal memorandum or a brief with the machine. And it's it's almost impossible to back out what was the contribution Mm -hmm. of the person and what was the contribution of the machine. That's fascinating. That sounds incredible. <laughs> but so one thing that that I think about when you describe that is uh, I think there's a lot of fear, and this has come up in a number of our episodes, that 
new technologies will eliminate jobs, will eliminate the need for people to do things. But what you're describing isn't necessarily the elimination of lawyers doing work. It's a new way of doing work. It might require maybe fewer lawyers in certain instances, but and especially that, right, that doesn't happen without the person participating in that iterative process. Right. So there are like two general views on this, you know, what's going to happen as AI penetrates the economy. There's the like massive dislocation end of the world up to end of the world. And then there's what more mainstream economists tend to think, which is we have dealt with technological change many, many, many times. Yes, there are typically some dislocations, but over time, there's enhanced prosperity and actually more labor, you know, workforce participation, right? Um, Vox, the um, uh, the the uh, news website has a fun video series, and there was this one um, uh, article that uh, the reporter a reporter had dug up from like the 30s or some something, and it was talking about the introduction of the concrete mixer. <laughs> And how this was going to just be horrendous. And it the way it described the concrete mixer, it was just hilarious. It was like this machine that can mix concrete like it was dough. And it's going to replace, you know, like hundreds of, you know, concrete mixing people, which it sure it did, actually. Right. I've mixed concrete by hand, by the way. And, you know, if you can have a machine do it, like have the machine do it. <laughs> That's better. You know, it's definitely better, right? And... Um, and so, yeah, but but there were fewer jobs. You know, there's a whole argument that now this is different because now it's like taking over human cognition and that's the last bastion or whatever. We'll see. I strongly suspect in our lifetime it's mostly going to be, you know, positive in terms of employment. As you mentioned, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about still requires a lot of human intervention, right? Um, what machines are good at is very specific, narrow task kind of work right, that you define the contours of, that a human being defines the contours of. And that is likely to be the case for the foreseeable future. Because if you think of the most impressive advances in artificial intelligence, beating a human being at go, right, the domain is just super specified, mm -hmm. right? You know what the rules are, you know, you know what the flow of information is. And so what I think we're learning is that where human beings can define a task, to have certain characteristics, narrow domain, knowable rules, and so on. Lots of data that you can get your hands on, either that you can generate yourself or get your hands on. Because the way that these games do this is through self-play. So you don't need to have the data out there, you just it can play itself. But again, you have to know the rules. When you can do that and you sick an AI on it, the AI is going to beat any human being mm -hmm. ultimately, right? But it still requires that first process of defining the scope. Right? AI is good at operating in these constrained, narrow environments. Human beings, because our, you know, our neurological architecture evolved over like, you know, hundreds of millions of years, right? Operating in the real world, right? So like, you know, m early mammals didn't have a constrained environment. They had to operate in right. like in the actual physical, super data dense real world. And, you know, over time, the animals that succeeded in that context, that had the neural architecture that worked better in that context, survived, and the other ones didn't. So, you know, machines don't have anything like that of deep evolutionary history in their neural architecture. And so it's going to be a long time, I suspect, until we start to get, I mean, they can beat us on computing power, you know, uh, energy consumption, that you can pass a lot more energy through these things. But the software part is actually, I think, ultimately going to be a bottleneck. Not that it's not ultimately going to get surmounted, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime, um, certainly in our lives or the lives of our students even. 
It sounds like partly humans still have to be there to know what questions to ask, to ask the right questions. Right. I will say, I uh, for for the historical work I've done, my archives were not digitized when I mm-hmm. used them, and mm-hmm. many of them now are. And mm. I think, wow, what a time saver! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be <laughs> to better. To do that, uh, uh-huh. you know, I mean, it, you know, it's I, I love going to the archives and right. and looking at. I think there is something to actually looking and holding the pieces of paper that people had mm-hmm. held before you and had created, but. Boy, it would really save a lot of time to be able to gather data. Travel digitally. costs. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a whole new world. So so I want to change tack a little bit and ask, um, in terms of the uses of technology in the law, it's not just in kind of the practice of law by lawyers in their everyday lives, but it's also in how non-lawyers are interacting with law and how people are resolving disputes uh, that may not even require lawyers anymore. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those dispute resolution mechanisms and, and how technology is changing those. Yeah. So this is a fascinating new area. And um, so online dispute resolution what I you know I've, I've learned just a little bit about it you know when you look at some of the the first early applications like eBay or something like that or Alibaba in China has a has an online dispute resolution platform and those platforms actually deal with enormous numbers of disputes just massive in fact on a pure numbers basis more than like the US court system but they're small dollars there's like our dispute over like a you know, $20 item that we would never take into court, which is obviously be too costly and so on. And what these platforms have developed are different ways of essentially, you know, doing dispute resolution. Like, I'm not happy with this thing. The seller's like, I sent it to you. It's what as described. And you kind of dispute back and forth. And on eBay, something like 90 or 99% of the disputes are just resolved by the machine. You can always appeal up to a person, but you can, but you can, uh, you can also just do it automatically. Um, and Alibaba, actually, uh, the system is more human-oriented, even though it's it's ma- it's still massive. You're still dealing with a huge number. But there are, like, uh, juries that they impanel, and they give, like, little chits to the people that participate. And it's a fascinating, actually more participatory mechanism that they've developed in China than the one that we use in the U.S., which is mostly automated. Um, but the company, essentially the core unit of eBay that – where they developed this uh, software, spun off to a company called Modria, which was then acquired by a firm called Tyler Tech. And what Tyler does is it does the back-end software for a lot of courts. It's like their case management software and stuff. And so the idea is that Tyler's going to integrate Modria's platform um, into their back-end, basically. So when you go to you know, small claims court or even like divorce, family court, you'll have the option of doing a lot of the work online, right? So you don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to fill out forms. It's actually, the cost savings are enormous, just the time savings. Um, and so the idea is that you can create a platform where folks can do these interactions, say like a divorce and custody agreement. So a lot of times this, this you know, the, a lot of the questions are not controversial. Both of the parents know what they want. You know, they just need some boxes to check, know what their options are. Boom, and it's kind of done. It can be done in a convenient way. They don't necessarily, these People might not want to be in the same room together, right? Uh, and this creates an option to do this remotely, and so so that is something that's happening. Uh, there's other uh, there's there's other apps out there. Um, Matterhorn is one that's uh, developed um, in part by one of our colleagues at the University of Michigan, JJ Prescott. That's essentially an app that courts use to 
process kind of low dollar, you know, um, fines and so on. If you kind of take these out and just extend them just a little bit, what they can start to help to deal with is a problem like non-appearance. So non-appearance is a huge issue in our court system. And, you know, people have lots of reasons why they don't go in and appear for, you know, a court date, right? They can't get the time off of work. Babysitter doesn't show up. You know, they might, a lot of people don't like courthouses. They have negative associations with those places, right? So there's kind of psychological reasons why they might not show up. But then, as you guys well know, that can turn into a very vicious cycle. So you don't show up. That's, you get a penalty associated with that. There's an additional fine, which you can't pay. So you don't show up to your subsequent one. And eventually this can spiral into, you know, a warrant and some jail time, which then you lose your job altogether. And what happens with the kids? And it's, it's not a good setup. And a lot of times people don't show up to court in part because they feel like they can't pay the fine or whatever, but there are options for them. If they actually were had gone, they would find a form where they can fill out that they're, you know, unable to pay and they can get a break or whatever. So the idea is to take all of this mess and put it on to an app. You know, a person gets a text and the text says something like, here's your, you know, you, you have your court appearance. And it can even say like, you know, if you can't pay, there are options available to you. And then you kind of click through on your phone, you know, you put in a little information, you can maybe make an application for a waiver, you fill in the form, you're employed, or you show your pay stubs, shows what your wages are, or whatever. And all of this can be done kind of on the front end and eliminate, or at least severely curtail, this kind of vicious cycle associated with non-appearance. So for me, that's like a very exciting application uh, for this technology. Um, just think about the cost of going to a courthouse. It's, ins- it's insane, especially you don't live near one. Charlottesville's like, oh, you take your car. Well, you like in Chicago or something like that. And again- oh, and It's only open during business hours, right? It's, it's, it's a limited, work, right, yeah, it's which always is work during hours, the work hours. Right? Exactly. If you, you don't know, have a car in Charlottesville, it's really, really hard. Right, if you yeah. don't have a car, you live in a rural area, you got to get in. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, you got maybe a family member has to take time off of work to take you. I mean, it can be very difficult um, and just enormously costly to people in terms of their well-being and their, you know, their employment prospects. And so just the ability to take that onto an online platform where people can do it off hours, the, tuck the kids in to your stuff that you need to deal with online. And you can imagine that becoming lots of things, checks in with probation officers, all kinds of ways that the state is touching people. And right now it's done in a physical location um, and it doesn't need to be. I'm waiting for the DMV. DMV would be a good one. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. That would be good. That would save e- everyone, everyone who drives. Right. Many, I don't know if I, I want an online driving test. <laughs> Not that part. Not that part. <laughs> I, I still agree. want that analog version of that. <laughs> Those <laughs> lines at the DMV, they're just, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. that's there's right. no need. So in many ways, these technologies make, they make justice more accessible. They make all sorts of parts of our legal system more accessible to people. Do you worry that there are downsides because all of these also create sort of new intermediaries, both between regular people and the law and between lawyers and the law, really, because now there are, there are programmers out there, there are other people who, who um, you know, control these different tools and who design these different tools. Are there potential risks or downsides with that? Right. So I think there are. So one is that people might find some of these tools alienating, mm-hmm. right? So as opposed to a real human being that they interact with. A second issue is that as you reduce the cost of essentially administering the law and disputing through legal channels, you might actually facilitate the penetration of law into our lives. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. And we could argue about that. 
Um, but it's a potentially interesting consequence. So more people using law more often, the state using law more often right, to exactly. regulate and intervene in people's right. lives. So like, you know, your neighbor, instead of, you know, you've, you've, instead of arguing about the fence, you know, it would be way too costly to go to court or something like that. But if there's a little online dispute resolution platform that you could use, maybe you use that instead. Right? Um, and is that a good or a bad thing? It's an interesting question. And then third, Leslie, kind of on your point is, the allocation of power. Mm-hmm. Right? Whose power is it? And um, you know, are those people accountable? Are they the right people? Are we even aware? Is it transparent in any meaningful way? Right. So yeah. So I would say that there are you know there are these complications. Right. In terms of the alienation, again, I think it's kind of pros and cons. I think it's a little bit about your personality type. I'm more than happy to interact with people online <laughs> rather than in person, <laughs> but that might not describe everybody. Right. Um, or Again, it, it depends on the stakes. It's one thing if the you know you know eBay says you lose, so you have to pay up your thirty dollars for something that came in the mail. It's another thing to say six years in prison, and it you know and the computer says that, right? Um, you know that would that's that's potentially problematic, and there are arguments about why you would want a human in the loop. People talk about a human in the loop, but I'm not sure that that even fully resolves the situation. And of course, you might worry about there's another one too, which is the discrimination bias, that's kind of a fourth one, right? Is that if you, 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 know, you use this data, say you use data on recidivism rates to make predictions that you then use for sentencing purposes, well, if the recidivism rate data is biased in some way, say against racial minorities, then you're just gonna perpetuate that through, um, you know, through the machine learning algorithm. And you know, that's kind of obvious at some level. And you, I think the real problem there is when it happens subtly and you don't know it, essentially you don't know it's happening, right? So many challenges coming up. It's just, <laughs> it's really something. How did you get interested in this? Yeah, no, this is a great question, right? Because at some level, I have no idea, right? I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't have the answer. We can't write an algorithm. Right, exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> Tells um, us the answer to that. Yeah, so the, um, so a core part of this is that you have to find the right collaborators, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm I'm not a programmer, you know. I, like I say, I'm just a country lawyer. You know, I don't really kind of do much other than the, the law. And so I'm not sure that's really a fair description. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, but certainly none of this work I could have done on my own. And so one of my main collaborators, this guy Dan Rockmore, who's at um at Dartmouth, and he's in the computer science and math department there. And the way we linked up was basically I was procrastinating at work. Um, and I was just, you know, reading, you know, blogs or whatever. I didn't feel like doing whatever I was supposed to be doing. And I came across a blog post about a proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper. And the paper was computational text analysis of the corpus of Western literature, basically. And it was a style analysis of like the whole of Western literature that had been digitized and was in the public domain. So I thought that paper was fascinating. It immediately occurred to me, well, we could do this in law. We could just do this with the Supreme Court. So I emailed Dan. I didn't know him. He was just the corresponding author for the paper. And he got right back to me, and he was super enthusiastic about it. And we've literally been working together for like 10 years now. Um, Just based on that email, we have like many, many projects. We have a book we're editing together. And I've worked with his graduate students who have now gone on. They have their own faculty positions. and, And it's really just kind of expanded out to like, you know, lots of groups of 
folks. But that was kind of the origin. And then we always would, you know, whenever a project would be winding down, we just think, well, what's next? Yeah. You know, what data can we get our hands on? What are the tools? What, what are some interesting questions? And then we kind of go from there. So that's really what's kind of kept me going. So it's certainly Dan, but also all, all kinds of other collaborators that I've been working with. It's just such an open frontier. You almost just need to just walk in any direction and you start to find some interesting things. My understanding is that philosophers and ethicists are also part of this conversation, right, for the reasons of we have to think about the values that are going into the questions and into the programming. And uh, and that, that seems like a key piece of, of what we're doing, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a fascinating intersection, too, is between philosophy, analytic philosophy, moral philosophy, and um, computer science, data analytics, and so forth. Then there are other things I think are interesting at the intersection as well, like um, what is machine knowledge? You know, what is machine learning and how does it relate to like human learning, right? So basically epistemology, right? right? Um, so, so that's super interesting. And these days, whenever I read <laughs> any kind of moral philosophy, especially the stuff that I'm interested in, which is more kind of about welfare as I might do cost-benefit analysis as part of my, as part of my research, um, these days, I can't get out of my mind, like, how is this how we would program a computer mm-hmm. to think about this? Mm-hmm. Like, or I read some, you know, stuff in basic moral reasoning, like someone comes through our legal theory workshop that we have every, every, you know, you know, a couple times a month, um, pretty sophisticated philosophers. And I think, you know, it's a, often it'll be about deep questions and how to engage in moral reasoning at all. And I think, again, are we mooting at some level, how to program this into a computer, um, you know, by thinking very carefully about each little step mm-hmm. and, how, you know, and, and to me, that actually is a, almost a useful way to thinking about a lot of questions in moral philosophy is like, huh, how, you know, would this be a useful It requires useful enormous way? clarity, right? right? You have to have enormous clarity to be able to make that next step. Right. And would this be a useful, would this be what we would want the machine? Is this how we want the machine to reason? Or we want to reason in this other way? Do we want it to reason more in deontological terms or in welfarist terms? And like, and, you know, I think that's a kind of an interesting mm-hmm. question. It's like a new categorical imperative. What would you want your machines to right. do? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Is it universalizable beyond human beings right. to other forms right. of intelligence? Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Mike. Yep, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. So, Leslie, I was struck here, as I was when we were talking about autonomous vehicles, that the nature of the language that we use to talk about these technological changes is really shifting. Mm -hmm. So in autonomous vehicles, we move from driverless cars to autonomous vehicles. And here we move from artificial intelligence to machine learning. And in both driverless cars and artificial intelligence, there are people there and then you take them away. This Mm -hmm. is intelligence that should be human and now is artificial, cars that should have drivers but no longer do. And now we talk just about the machines and we kind of erase the people altogether. So you end up with autonomous vehicles and machine learning. That's really interesting. So our own language is kind of erasing our role and moving these concepts further away from the human role that they used to they used to require. Yeah. And on the one hand, that probably makes sense, right? It's so anthropocentric to think we're at the center of how we should think about what machines do. And so now we're learning that, you know, the sun doesn't revolve around Earth and the machines don't revolve around people. But I wonder what it does to how we would regulate it and how we think about, um, about what machines actually are doing and what roles they're playing. 
Yeah, I think you could think of that as being accurate. You could think of it as being an opening for realizing we really are creating things that are going to make decisions on their own. So we have to think very hard about what they're going to do. Or you could think of it as an abdication. You could think of it as it's the machines, it's not us, and uh, uh, signaling some sort of lack of responsibility. Yeah, which we know, given our conversation about philosophy and moral reasoning, right? We're not abdicating our responsibility. Right. We still have enormous responsibility uh, in setting up those programs and how they're going to work and then how we're going to regulate them and what the law is going to do to them going forward. I feel like that's where this whole field is going. It really does push you to ask these big questions about what is it that we actually think is the right thing to do in given situations so that we can program machines to be making those choices without us having to control every single step or to make every single decision. And I think it's really easy to get caught in the weeds and the possibilities of what the technology can do, right? Yeah. And say, oh, look, it makes discovery easier. Oh, look, it makes resolving small legal disputes easier without then thinking about how does it do that? And what are the priors that are entered into there? And what I mean, it, I think these are things that are happening all over the place, right? Yeah. We have the capacity to alter genes, but should we, right? So right. it's the normative questions that I think the law asks and philosophy asks that uh, that we we have to keep sight of and not allow ourselves to kind of get swept away by the headiness of what the technology can do without pausing to think, how do we want it to do that? And how should it interact with people and society? And what kind of questions are required to be asked before we can do it? So I really love that part of the conversation. And it made me think about um, what legal education will look like in the future to respond to all of these technologies coming into law. What is it that law students are going to have to learn? And it seems like um, you know, one thing that people will have to learn is to be adept at uh, understanding technology and being flexible and unafraid and encountering new technologies given the pace of change that they might see over the course of a career. I think that's exactly right. I think that's our job. I think we know that. We talk about that yeah. all the time, right? What is the future not only of law but of legal education? Yeah. And um, our guests come in and they talk about specific areas of the law and then it's on us to figure out what that means for our students and what it means for our curriculum. And I, I think there are some, you know, there are worries that people could have in looking at how some of these processes and and uh, programs could change the way law practice looks. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that's all a bad thing, um, because it seems to me that if we're not going to advocate to just machine learning, that there's still always going to be a place for the critical thinking skills, what I think of as kind of the deep skills that people come out of law school with, to understand the tools around them, to understand how they're supposed to work, to understand how they're supposed to further uh, legal practice and justice. I think that's right. And I think in some ways, the conversation we had with Mike just heightens that and says we have to be even more precise in the analytical reasoning we're teaching our students and even more precise in how we think about problem solving because we're setting up systems that then will operate without us. But in the setting up of those systems, uh, we need thinkers who have the kind of educational background that we provide. That's it for this episode of Common Law. If you like the show, don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio fix. You'll find more about big data and the law in our show notes, plus tons of other data from past episodes on our website, commonlawpodcast.com. The human intelligence behind our show includes Tyler Ambrose, Robert Armengol, Tony Field, and Mary Wood. I'm Risa Golubuff. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. 
We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an episode that builds on today's conversation about AI to explore matters of national security, surveillance, and international law. Hope you'll join us then.